Turning your Bibles to Genesis chapter 18, we're going to look at verse 16 to verse 33 tonight, the end of the chapter. I hope you are uh, benefiting and um, growing uh, in your, not only in your knowledge of God's Word, but also um, in being transformed into the image of His Son as we go through this book. You know, our world is fascinated by the word love. Uh, It's probably the most used and, as you know, the most misused word in the English dictionary. The Webster's Dictionary defines love as a strong affection for another arising out of kinship or personal ties. It's also defined as an unselfish, loyal, and benevolent concern for the good of another, such as the fatherly concern of God for humankind. I think that second aspect touches upon how God is described in the scriptures. However, the world's definition of the word love for all practical purposes, apart from its dictionary use, is to be kind, uh, to be gentle, or to be nice. Now, there's nothing wrong in those implications of what the word love means, but if it only means being kind or being gentle and being nice then in such a definition, there is no place for correction. And we've been so short of what really love actually entails. Because a love that only means being nice or being kind has no place for truth. There's no concern for the good of the other in such a definition. Uh, There is a vague sense of what happens when such a love is expressed. But the feeling is mistaken for the action. Now, in a world in which the feeling is expected to fix all the problems, the fact that the Bible speaks clearly about God's judgment comes as a shock. We don't like to talk about judgment. But judgment is merely a consequence. It's a result of something. You know, we have seen so far in our study of the book of Genesis, God as a creator A God as someone who's always existed. We've seen a God and met a God who sees and hears. Uh, We have seen a God who is all-powerful. And in the last week, we saw God as the one who is the God of the impossible. And today, we come to another aspect of God, an aspect that actually flows from his love. And while the world has its own definition of what love is, the Bible has a great deal to say about love as well. The Bible says that the love is of God and that God is love, 1 John chapter 4. In other words, love is a fundamental characteristic of who God is and everything that God does is influenced by his love. You know, just like the discipline of the child by a parent is influenced by his or her love for the child, God's discipline of us and of this world is influenced by his genuine and authentic love for it. But even in the midst of the judgment, we see an aspect of God that is unique to the God of the Bible. And that is his fairness, his justness. You see, to be a sovereign individual and lack goodness leads to making of a tyrant or tyranny. And to be merely good but not having the power to do anything with it leads to impotency or an important kind of a ruler. 
And only in the God of the Bible we find both of them coming together. He is sovereign and he is good. And so I've titled our lesson for today, The Just God. The Just God. You see, understanding the justness of God helps us to praise and worship this God as we should. But it also implies that in our own dealings with each other and with the world that is around us, that we would be just like him. The just God. I want to share with you two things from the passage that is in front of us uh, and how we see his justness revealed in this text. Uh, First of all, we see his justness revealed in the revelation of his plans. His His justness displayed in the revelation of his plans. And secondly, we see his justness displayed in the reasonableness of his plans. So let's begin by looking, first of all, at the revelation of his plans. Notice with me verse 16 to verse 19 as we consider Genesis chapter 18. Then the men uh, men rose up from there and looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to send them off. The Lord said... Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do, since Abraham will surely become a great and a mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed? For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him." It's a fascinating passage, isn't it? Uh, The guests have just finished their meal to give you a context of where we are. And their conversation with Abraham and Sarah has just come to an end. And we left the last section, as I mentioned earlier, understanding that God is the God of the impossible. He can do all things that are in line with his character. He is a God of order and does not do anything that is contradictory. Everything he does, he does in line with who he is, and he does it for a plan and a purpose. The the conversation with Abraham and Sarah has come to an end, and now, according to their plan, they're ready to move to the next assignment. So they rise up from where they are, verse 16, and look down towards Sodom. You see, they were on an elevation and could see from that elevation in a distance beyond the Dead Sea, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, From Abraham's perspective, after being the only man to have a meal with a pre-incarnate Christ, that is Christophany, Christ before his incarnation, Abraham now becomes the only other man apart from Enoch, mentioned in Genesis 5, and then Noah mentioned in Genesis 6, to have the honor of walking with God, verse 16. In its immediate context, it displays a continuation of the kindness and gracious hospitality that Abraham has already shown to these three individuals. But in its larger context, it displays the privilege and honor that God displays on a man who has found favor with God. Not because of some inherent goodness in Abraham, but because of God's grace on his life. What a wonderful God this is. And then, As we look at verse 17, Moses then gives us an access to a 
soliloquy is, uh, which is essentially an act of speaking one's thoughts uh, aloud. And that's what we have in verse 17. It may be that the Lord is speaking here to the two angels, but it could be that Moses is recording this for us to give us an insight into the Lord's plan. It's as if the Lord is saying this, which he is, and we as the audience now reading it, it's for our benefit that we understand what the Lord is doing here. He's giving us an insight into his plans. Now, that's how I have taken it, and therefore I've titled this The Revelation of His Plans. But you might say, what, what is the purpose of such a revelation? Why tell us what he's going to do? Well, the text gives us two reasons. You see, God reveals because what he reveals is meant for public proclamation. God reveals what he's about to do so that it is there and meant for public proclamation. Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Uh, since Abraham will surely become a great and a mighty nation, and in him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You see, Abraham himself will be a great and a mighty nation, and through him all the nations of this earth will be blessed. He needs to know so that he then can declare it to the rest of the world. What God declares about the coming judgment, what I'm about to do, he says, he declares it to be proclaimed to the entire world. Uh, that has been the consistent testimony of his word. For example, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, it says, For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. Hebrews 9, 27, For in as much as it is appointed for men to die, and after this, says, comes judgment. In Matthew chapter 12, it says, But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. Psalm 96, 13, Before the Lord, for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Our God is coming, and he is coming to judge the earth. That is the message uh, that has been given to his people to proclaim to the entire world. The, this kind of a judgment is as sure as the reality of our own existence. This will happen. It is one that is to be publicly proclaimed by his children. But there's also another implication of the revelation of God. Secondly, it is to be personally obeyed. And notice verse 19. For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. For I have chosen him, he says. Uh, that word there for chosen is actually the Hebrew word yada, which means to, to know. I have known him. Uh, and this is knowing is not just to have a knowledge about Abraham's existence, but it is to know them intimately. It is to know someone intimately. And the, and the extent of that in intimacy is compared to the relationship that a husband has with his wife. It is as a husband knows his wife that God knows Abraham. And there is a purpose to this knowledge. He is declaring his plans to Abraham so that he and his descendants, not just his physical descendants, but also his spiritual descendants, will keep the way of the Lord. Verse 19. You see, the Bible you have 
Uh, we are spoiled for choices in terms of the number of versions we have. You see, the Bible you have is not just to be read and studied to show others how much you know and how many theological and philosophical arguments you can make to defend it. Well, there is a place for those things, but primarily it is to be read and studied so that you and I may keep the word of the Lord. You see, God does not leave us in any confusion as to what he expects from you and from me. Don't just be hearers of God's word, be doers of it. You see, his word contains his mind. Uh, his word contains or shows us the sinful state of man. His word reveals the way that you and I can be saved and be right with God. His word proclaims the eternal destiny of those who choose to reject him. What does it mean to keep the way of the Lord? What is the way of the Lord? Here in this text, in verse 19, it is to do righteousness and justice. It is to do that which is right, and it is to do that which is fair or just. Uh, this is the first time, by the way, those two terms have been mentioned together, righteousness and justice. Uh, it will be mentioned either first or second uh, 22 times in the rest of the scriptures. And also, this is the first time the word justice is mentioned in the scriptures. Of course, being in the book of Genesis, there's a lot of firsts that we will come across. To be righteous, then, is to be morally right. The world's definition of the word righteous is someone who meets its standards. And those standards never are the same as you go throughout the world. But the Bible's standard of man's righteousness, on the other hand, is God himself. It's God's perfections in every attribute, in every attitude, and in every action, and in every word. And the Bible is very clear on what God's standard is. It is his word, isn't it? It is his perfections. It is his attributes. It is his char character. And it is equally clear as, as the word of God that we are to shoot for, we are to aim for those standards, not how the other person is living. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not only is uh, th this is something that we have fallen short of, our goal is uh, his righteousness itself. We have to be perfect as he is perfect, our Lord would say. But not only is he righteous, he expects us to be righteous, his way is also marked by justice. Uh, he is a just God. You know, when we say that God is just, we are saying that he is perfect and perfectly right in how he treats his creatures. He shows absolutely no partiality. He commands, for example, against the mistreatment of others. He is just in how he rewards. He is just in his judgments. Paul writes in Colossians, for he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Uh, God is not partial. He is a just God. The Bible also says that not only does he sh not show partiality or favoritism, but, th but that righteousness and justice are the very foundations of his throne. Psalm 89. It's the very basis on which he acts. All that he does is just and it is right. And that is his expectation from his children as well. That we would do that which is right 
and that which is just. Psalm 33 verse 5 says, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Uh, Proverbs 21.3 says, To do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. I don't know how many ministries you're involved in. I don't know how many activities in the Christian life that you're involved in. You'd rather do one activity and do it well and continue to be like Christ than be involved in 10, 15 activities and not become like Christ at all. God's justness then is seen in his revelation of his plans. His revelation is one that is to be publicly proclaimed and it is to be personally obeyed. But God's justness is also seen in the reasonableness of his plans. Notice verse 20 and 21 as we begin this section. And the Lord said, the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great and their sin is exceedingly grave. First of all, as we think of the judgments or the justness of God, we see that his judgments are righteous. Uh, The basis on which our God judges is his own righteousness. And notice two things that are mentioned in verse 20. Firstly, there is an outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah, and it is described as indeed something that is exceedingly great. Indeed great. We're not told the, the source of this outcry. We're not told where or who it is that is a part of this outcry. And the word there for outcry means to cry or to lament loudly. Uh, it's the same word that is used for the Israelites when they were in Egypt and they cried out to God for deliverance. Uh, the outcry or the cry, the lament coming from these two cities is indeed great. But we're not told from whom this outcry is coming. It's, it could be that God and his holy justice cried out against this city. It could be that the angelic beings may have visited it before and cried out by what they were seeing. It could be that creation itself is crying, crying, out, crying out against the violation of God's law. It could also be that it, this is something of a, a multitude of victims from this sit, two cities that are crying out against the injustice that is done towards them. We don't know that, or perhaps it's a combination of all of the above, and the common thread that you find there is that God's law has been violated. Firstly, then we read about the outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah, but secondly, notice at the end of verse 20, their sin is exceedingly grave. The word translated as grave is the same word that is translated as glory. It means something that is heavy and weighty. Uh, Their sin is heavy, it's weighty, it is extremely heavy, it is extremely grave. It's not that they have sinned, that in itself of course demands God's justice or judgment, but their sin is exceedingly grave. Now the question, what is sin? The Westminster Shorter Catechism answers, sin is any want of conformity unto or the transgression of the law of God. It is either to not do what God says we must do. It is any want of conformity unto. And secondly, it is to do what God's word says we must not do. That is the violation or the transgression of the law of God. 
We call it sins of omission or commission. When we do that, when we sin, it is God's standard that we are breaking. It is his law that we disobey. First John chapter 3, verse 4 says, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Now James chapter 4, verse 17, James writes, Therefore to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. It is not to do what God says we must do, and it is to do what God says we must not do. That is sin. Now, while in its immediate context, sin may be against a particular individual, but in its ultimate context, sin, every sin, is ultimately against a holy God. How do we know that? Well, turn with me to Psalm chapter 51. Perhaps a psalm that many of us have gone to when we are at loss of words, asking God's forgiveness for the sins that we commit against him. But notice in Psalm 51, the psalm of David, a psalm that he penned after his adultery with Bathsheba. And after Nathan, the prophet, came to him, it says, in verse 3, David writes, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak. Now, if you know the story there, you know that it was, it was multiple individuals that David had sinned against. He had sinned against his own wife. He had sinned against Bathsheba. He had sinned against Uriah. He had sinned against his own people. There's not one person that is in his immediate vicinity that he's not sinned against. But here he says, against you, you only have I sinned. It's important to understand that because the God of the Bible does not have some arbitrary measure for his judgment. He does not have some external standards for his judgments. His judgments are not based on how he's feeling that day or on his mood, which is how some of the pantheistic and Greek gods were. He does not judge on the basis of how his day was. Rather, he judges on the basis of his righteousness and his righteousness is rooted in his very character. That's who this God is. His judgments are righteous. You see, what, what was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah where they were violating God's law. We don't not know exactly what is happening in this text. We can gather a few things when we get to chapter 19. But what they were doing was they were violating God's law. And God's law is based are grounded in his own character. His judgments then are righteous. But not only that, secondly, his judgments are just, verse 21. He says, I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry, which has come to me, and if not, I will know. Now, as you read that verse, perhaps you're thinking, if God knows everything, and he does, then why is it that he has to go down and see what they have done whether it is according to the outcry that has come to him. And the answer is, it gives us, you and me today, and Abraham at that time, an insight into the justness of God's judgments. It reveals to us that the God of this earth, the only God that there is, is perfectly just in his judgments. Everything that he does is right, and everything he does is just. 
You see, when they are judged for their sin, it'll be crystal clear why everyone there were punished the way they were. You see, everything that Sodom and Gomorrah will face is in line with the seriousness of their sin. And what is true of Sodom and Gomorrah is actually also true of you and me. You see, God's judgment against us will always be perfectly in line with the fact that he is righteous and that he is just. None of us will receive more than we deserve, and we will not receive less than we deserve. None of us will be able to say to him, I deserved better. No, no. What we receive will be in line with God's righteousness and his justice. As you think of the world around us with so much injustice and so much arbitrary measures of what justice is, don't your heart, doesn't your heart, and as does mine, cry out for true justice? In verse 21, the word there for outcry is slightly different from the one in verse 20. Here, it means a cry of distress. And there in verse 20, it meant a cry of lament. So here, it's further helplessness and hopelessness of the situation. Uh, this is literally crying out to God in despair. This was also the kind of outcry that the Israelites also poured out in their calling out on God when they were in Egypt. The two words taken together mean a pouring out of lament and despair towards God. As you think of God's justness, and as you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, you can't help but think of God's patience towards us as a nation. What are we seeing today as we look at the world around us? See, the lines between good and evil are so blurred. Uh, that which God's word says is good, in our society is called evil. And that which God's word says is evil in our society is called as good. Rebellion against God is applauded and, and celebrated. James Montgomery Boyce, a pastor who died a number of years back, captures the outcry of the world we live in in this way. He says, listen, can't you hear the cries in your imagination? I think I hear the cry of a child, wretched, hurt, and terrified, being beaten by a drunken father. There's another cry, he says. It is the cry of the old man being assaulted by a gang of tough street youths. I hear his painful cry as they beat him around the face and the shoulders. Then, he says, there is the cry of a teenage girl being raped in an abandoned car. And then there is the cry of a wife abandoned by her husband. I hear the cry of a broken man so trapped by our dehumanizing welfare system that he has given up. I hear the cry of sinful pleasures, the raucous cries in the thousands of bars that scar the faces of our cities, the cries of prostitutes and those who patronize them, the soft cries of drug addicts and the arrogant cries of those who have been able to defeat their enemies or ruin their competitors. But wait, he goes on to say, these cries are only a fraction of those millions of cries that are rising every minute of every day from every street in every city and the village of, villages of our land. Cries, cries that are all heard by God and felt by God. Must God's judgment not fall on us too and quickly? 
captures it so well. I couldn't have worded it better myself. Every cry. Uh, perhaps you've been in such a situation where you've cried out to God as an unbeliever and he heard your cry. God has been patient and he's been merciful towards you. If you're here and if you've never repented and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, God has been patient and he's been merciful to you. Oh, turn to him and call out to him before it is too late. Uh, behold, Paul says, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. His judgments are righteous. His judgments are just. And thirdly and finally, his judgments are, are, are a display of his mercy and of his grace. His judgments are a display of his mercy and grace. As I looked at this interaction that Abraham had with God from verse 22 to verse 33, many have landed on the fact that this is a model of prayer. And certainly there is uh, an aspect to it. There are things that we can gather, and I have mentioned a few, uh, in, in, even in our time together, I will mention a few. But primarily, as you look at this interaction, you can't help but notice that this God, his judgments are merciful uh, shows his mercy and his grace. How so? Let's read that passage first. Genesis 18, verse 22. Then the men turned away and there, from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham was still standing before the Lord. Abraham came near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And so the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare the whole place on their account. And Abraham replied, Now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am but dust and ashes. Suppose the 50 righteous are lacking five. Will you destroy the whole city because of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. He spoke to him yet again and said, suppose 40 are found there. And he said, I will not do it on account of the 40. Then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry and I shall speak. Suppose 30 are found there. And he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, now behold, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 20. And then he said, oh, may the Lord not be angry. And I shall speak only this once. Suppose 10 are found there. And he said, I will not destroy it on account of the 10. As soon as he had finished speaking to Abraham, the Lord departed. And Abraham returned to his place. What do we have here in this text? Is this a child of God trying to change the mind of God with an appeal to the standards of God? Is this trying to pray a kind of prayer that changes the mind of God? Is this a child being persistent in order to get what he wants? Now, we've got to be more careful readers and students than coming up with those conclusions because notice a few facts about this interaction with me. At this stage, in verse 22, we are told that the other two individuals, or angels, 
uh, seen here as men, they turned away and already began making their way towards Sodom. And notice Abraham's position. He was standing before the Lord. And then in verse 23, we are told he comes near and he speaks to the Lord. He's facing the Lord and he comes near to the Lord. He begins by making an appeal to the standards of God, which is rooted in who he is. Will the righteous and just God deliver the same fate to both the righteous and the wicked? Will the righteous see the same fate as the wicked? That is his question, isn't it? But after making the appeal, he then starts with a number. Now, it's not very clear why he starts with, with the number that he has, he has in mind, 50, that he says there. Uh, perhaps there are a few reasons that he is thinking about. Uh, perhaps he thinks this is a large city and he should be able to find at least 50 in the city. And then he goes on at least six times that is recorded for us there uh, back and forth that, that, that we see. Uh, notice when he begins, he starts with 50. Uh, shall you sweep it away? Shall you slay? Shall you judge is what he says. Shall not the judge of the earth, verse 25, deal justly? Oh, I will spare the whole place if I find that there are only 50 righteous in the city. And then notice, he takes it down by 5 to 45. Will you destroy the whole city if you just find five lesser than 50? I know I'm but dust and ashes, he says, and I've ventured to speak with you. But what if there are only five less? Well, I will not destroy it. I suppose 40, another five reduce. I will not do it. And then, for no reason or apparent reason, he goes down from by reducing it by five to reducing it now by tens until he reaches ten. Oh, may the Lord not be angry, he says, and I'll speak this only once. Suppose ten are found there, and then he says, I will not destroy it on account of the ten. What we're seeing here is not some bargaining or not some sort of a negotiation. It's not because God already knows what is going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, remember what he said in verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? So God already knows what he is going to do. What we are seeing here is rather God's grace and his mercy on display and it is put on display in allowing Abraham the role of an intercessor. Abraham is given a platform to plead on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. He's communicating with God. He's praying to God and he's pleading before God. It's, it is true that he pleads on the basis of the number of righteous people in the city. But actually, if you read the text, he's pleading for God to spare the entire city, not just those who are righteous in that city. But there are two aspects in this text that we want to kind of capture. Uh, firstly, he is praying as he intercedes on behalf of people in Sodom and Gomorrah. Notice a few things that we can learn about godly prayer as we think of Abraham's prayer. First of all, it displays humility in his attitude. You know, there's not even a hint in this conversation, this exchange that he's pulling out his status as as a basis for, for his praying to the Lord. He does not appeal to the fact that, remember God, I'm the one who found favor in your sight? No, he, he doesn't do that. Or that I'm the one you have declared righteous, remember? 
No, he does not appeal to how great a host he has been just a few verses back. Instead, what we see here is his awareness of his position before God. Notice verse 27. He says, I have ventured to speak to the Lord. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm awed that I'm even speaking to you. Why? Because I'm but dust and ashes. Not only that, he's not saying, just spare my relative Lot and his family, you know. You can do whatever you want with the rest of the people. But he's saying, spare the entire city on account of ten righteous people. We see in Abraham then an attitude of humility as he prays to God and pleads on behalf of the extremely wicked and sinful people in Sodom and Gomorrah. A city that is known for its wickedness. He displays humility in his attitude. As we go through these things, perhaps you might want to check about your own attitude towards the Lord when you pray to him. Secondly, it's simple in its content. You know, the prayer is pretty straightforward and modest. It, it is simple, meaning Abraham here is not venturing into things that are none of his business. He's not trying to find out God's reasoning behind election or choosing or what God's thought process is in his plans and purposes. No, he's staying within his lane. He did not feel restricted to pray for unconverted individual or cities because he was not privy to God's ultimate purpose, what, what God is doing. And so we see a prayer that is pretty straightforward in terms of the numbers that he uses and in terms of his interaction with the Lord. But thirdly, we also see someone that is displays persistent in his approach. Persistence in his approach. Notice at least six times that he has gone back and forth with the Lord as he has repeatedly and persistently plead, pled on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. And every time his prayer is answered, which is really immediately, he goes back and pleads with the Lord. He does not lose heart. It reminds us of the unrighteous judge in Luke 18, does it not? who's willing to be just because of a persistent widow. How will not a righteous judge be just then when he finds his child persistent in his approach? Uh, fourthly, it is scriptural in its basis. Did you notice that Abraham appeals to the righteousness of ju and justice of God? Uh, he does that at the beginning notice Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you indeed sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous who are in it? Notice the words righteous. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked. And at the end of that verse, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? As you look at the rest of the scriptures, you consistently come across a God who is righteous and who is just. Lord, you are righteous, Will you deal with the righteous just like you deal with the wicked people? Lord, you are a just God. Will you judge? Will the judge of the earth not deal justly? You see, he is appealing to God on the basis of his own character. And he uses his knowledge of God to do that. How do we know things about God? Well, we know in a general sense to a general revelation but really, it is through the special revelation, through the word of God, that we get to know more about God. And so as we think of our own prayer life, if you want to improve and grow in your prayer life, pray God's words back to him. 
used his words to pray to him. You know, he never gets tired of hearing his children use his words to pray to him. There is a scriptural basis. Fifthly and finally, notice the earnestness in his pleading on behalf of wicked sinners. You see, Abraham's prayer is a, is a model for us to plead on behalf of the people of this world. Uh, we are to plead on behalf of that brother, uh, that sister that does not know the Lord. Uh, we are to plead on behalf of that son, uh, that daughter, uh, that son-in-law, that daughter-in-law who is not a child of God. We are to plead on behalf of our co-workers, on behalf of that neighbor, on behalf of our dads and moms who are unbelievers. You see, if Abraham can plead on behalf of wicked sinners such as they were in Sodom and Gomorrah, we can sure plead on behalf of people we do know and we should. First is the aspect then of the intercessory prayer that Abraham offers, but there's another aspect of this interaction as we think of God's grace and his mercy on display. It is the aspect of the privilege and the honor that is bestowed on Abraham as the intercessor for Sodom and Gomorrah. God allows Abraham to pray in this way as an act of his grace and mercy on Abraham. Perhaps if you're inquisitive, you're wondered like I have wondered, you know, why did Abraham stop at 10? Why not keep going? After all, his prayers were answered in the affirmative so far. Why not just keep going? Well, some have suggested it's because that's how many people were in Lot's house, you know. He had four daughters, two sons-in-law, and his wife. And that's why Abraham perhaps stopped at 10. Others have said it's because that's how many it takes to make up a city, and so he stopped at 10. Now, at the end of the day, we don't know why he didn't go below 10, but you have to ask yourself, would God have spared the city if there were only five righteous? What about three? Uh, what about two? Or God might save the wicked for the sake of one truly righteous individual. Now, if you know your Bibles well, isn't that what God has done in Christ Jesus? You see, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Not for 50, not for 45, not for 40, not for 30, 20, 10, 5, 3, or 2, but for one. For the sake of one righteous person, I will have mercy on the wicked sinners. You see, if you face death without placing your trust in that one righteous individual, you will spend eternity apart from him. Uh, this is the place that the Bible calls as hell. See, he's a righteous and a just God, and he does that which is right and that which is just. And for the sake of his son, that one individual who is perfect and who is right, he is willing to apply his righteousness to any who will repent of their sin and believe in him. Yes, Yes, the judge of the earth has acted justly and he acts justly. And he does that for the sake of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the only one who is perfect and righteous. Uh, scriptures tell us that through his passive and active obedience, that is, through the perfect life that he lived and through the suffering and death on your behalf and mine, he purchased your redemption and mine. He lived and he died 
And then on the third day, he rose again. And at that moment, he is interceding for us as he sits on the right hand of the Father. If you've not placed your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, here's what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 7:25. Therefore, he's able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If you're a believer, he has interceded for you already, and he continues to intercede for you. None of our prayers ever go wasted. Romans 8.34 says, Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. John, in his letter, concludes this way. He says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. As we look at this story, as we see the justness of God, we see God's justness in, in how he treated not only Abraham, but how, also how he treats each one of us. None of us, none of us have inherent righteousness to claim any standing before a holy God. All our claims are based on the fact that the one whom we have placed our trust in, the Lord Jesus Christ, it is his righteousness that is imputed to us, that is given to us. Our sins are laid on him and his righteousness is given to us. And only on that basis can we come to the throne of grace of our dear God. God is love and he demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Me pray as we conclude our time together. Father, thank you for these wonderful reminders from your word that you are a just God. That you're a righteous God. And even in the things that we have seen tonight, Father, we are reminded of the fact that your judgments are just. None of us at the, on the day of judgment will be able to say to you, we have been dealt an unfair hand. No. Oh Lord, forgive us for thinking many times that we deserve your grace and that we deserve your mercy and, and act in a way that shows pride rather than humility. Oh Lord, humble us. Break us. Remind us that we are completely and utterly dependent on you. As we look at the injustices in our world, what a great reminder this passage is that the one who is the ultimate, he is ultimately just. And that every wrong will be made right one day. We long for that day. We do pray for our time now in our small groups as we get the opportunity to plead on behalf of our world, we pray that it would be a wonderful blessing to spend the time in this way. We ask these things in Christ's precious and worthy name. Amen.